researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. On this episode of Improbable Developments, we are talking to Dr. Ethan Perlstein. Ethan received a PhD from Harvard University and completed an independent postdoctoral fellowship at the Lewis Sigler Institute at Princeton University. Since its founding in 2014, he has been the CEO of Perlara Public Benefit Corporation, the first biotech PBC that partners with highly motivated families to cure rare genetic diseases. He also served the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation as their first chief scientific officer. I met Ethan through Sanath Kumar Ramesh, my partner on the Raising Rare podcast. We have taken parts of an interview that Sanath and I did with Ethan for Raising Rare and added some questions about Ethan's career path for today's discussion. We hope you enjoy it. So, Ethan, um, as a researcher, I actually started my career doing animal models for about five years, and it just kind of opened up to me. You know, I was a molecular genetics major and came out with my bachelor's, found a job, and it was in pulmonary physiology. And so I was doing animal models of gas exchange and uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And then I jumped to Pfizer and started building animal models of asthma. So I lost interest in it. I I was done with it. Um, Could have been our our lack of success with it. Guinea pigs do not get asthma. Um, We proved it. Many companies joined us in proving that. Um, But the... You know, so what, what drew you to this? How, how did you find yourself in this business, in this research? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I trained in a wonderful lab, a professor named Stuart Schreiber, and he, his lab was sort of half chemist, half, half biologist. And the chemists were making the molecules that the biologists were screening. And there was a tight loop of collaboration that I think kind of was the heart of many pharma companies, um, you know, until the kind of great deleveraging and CR, rise of the CRO and the rise of the outsourced. But until like it's the 90s, you know, that you had kind of groups like that in pharma too. Um, and so it was a great model. And so I kind of cut my teeth in that environment and, and then was allowed to kind of incubate these ideas, which I later called evolutionary pharmacology, where I just got intrigued by the fact that and this and was a large part of what my postdoc work was. You mentioned a drug before Zoloft. You know, I was giving yeast yeast cells Zoloft, and they were overdosing, as I described it. And I couldn't understand why, because they don't produce serotonin. They don't have a serotonin transporter. But it turned out that Zoloft and many other cationic amphilic drugs that are psychoactive have pharmacology that has nothing to do with the cert 
transporter. And that's what was sort of mind-blowing to me was that, huh, maybe there's a whole layer of complexity we haven't even been seeing. And talk about polypharmacology and and it's like, well, I, I kind of put this evolutionary filter through it. So I just got really excited intellectually by that idea. And then at a certain point though, I was at a crossroads in, in my young career and 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 didn't really get into the academic departments that I really was dreaming to get into. And that was a, a kind of a false hope on my part, but that's another another story. But there definitely was uh, structural reasons as well, a postocalypse, which really hasn't changed, where there's just too many postdocs and not enough professorships to absorb them. So I decided that I still wanted to work on this, this um, you know, the kind of this frontier of you know pharmacology and and evolution, and but I wanted it to have real world practicality and real world impact. And I just felt that maybe not getting an academic job was a blessing in disguise because I could focus on ways to have more immediate impact. And I'm not an MD, PhD, so I can't directly work with patients, but I wanted to feel like the research was not just getting me acclaim among my peers because it's in a great journal published somewhere, but but I want my research to end up in, in people and in kids for diseases and having them be uh, improved. And that just sort of thinking about that idea and then seeing the unmet need in rare diseases seven years ago and how much a lot of that seemed to be about just not having the right insights into what targets matter and, and realizing, well, mod, animal models would help you generate those and could generate you, could generate compounds. And, and then, yeah, so it kind of just all crystallized over many, many years slowly. Yeah, I just wanted, to, at the end of the day, I just wanted the research to have impact. So as I understood the story, you were born in this lab and you started working in this lab. What happened actually before you started in the lab? What got you interested in biology at all or chemistry? I don't know which half of the lab you were in. I was in the biology part, but I uh, pretended to, to be a chemist just by association. I mean, I, I was definitely interested in science and was happily kind of a nerd from a young age. But yeah, I, I think I didn't really uh, have a sense of what it meant to do science till I was lucky enough to, to get some internships at the NIH and started actually working in immunology with a, a brilliant scientist named Ron Germain. That was kind of my first awakening when I was in high school and, and, and in college that uh, that research was, that the active research was just, was going to be my religion and, uh, and that I wanted to, and that my temple was the lab and that I just wanted to I wanted to be in the lab as much as possible. I wanted to be around scientists and I wanted to be paid to think as, as I kind of initially thought about it. Yeah, I think it's part of the excitement that most of us who found themselves doing scientific jobs is you got in there and you go, I never knew this was going on. And then once you knew it was going on and, I, and you get paid for it and you get to actually impact people's lives, that's what the whole purpose of your work is. It just is so fulfilling and so exciting. So it's interesting to hear that an, an NIH internship as early as high school, that's amazing to just get the glimpse and, and say, that's what I want to do. No, it was, it was thanks to the early internet and being able to use my dad's email. I could write to, to PI who so were starting to put correspondence address. Usually the correspondence address used to be an address, and then it became an email in like 96 or something when I was in high school. And that's, I took advantage of it and then Internet's been, at least for me, has been working out well as a, as a way to create a scientific identity and to, to find other scientists. And so then as you made it through your academic career, you, you got drawn to rare disease. You started a company, you mentioned it, Perlara, and you said 1.0. I'm assuming there's a 2.0 coming. 
or, or on its way. Tell us a little about Perlara and, you, and, you, and your, your entrepreneurial side. Yeah, so Perlara is a PBC or a public benefit uh, company, which is an important part of the the story. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have science that matters. I also didn't want it to be unaffordable if if it was going to make the real world. So I, I set up the company as a public benefit corporation, and I think it was the first in biotech. And there's subsequently been others that have formed. I'm happy to say it's still not like something that's super trendy yet, but I think it. Uh, I think hopefully it will become more widespread. But yeah, I kind of. I think I've always had the entrepreneurial bug and, and and was able to channel it within academia for quite a while until I wasn't. And then of course, once you get into the professorship, you're, you're, you're really only, there's only really one way you're supposed to generate funding and that's through grant writing. And so I, I knew that I wanted to, uh, again, be able to tell stories uh, uh, to what I've learned were these people called investors who would just give you money <laughs> if you told them a good story that made scientific sense, at least uh, I thought, uh, instead of waiting months and months and months for grants that you, that you might never get because you keep getting rejected on top of that. So I just kind of watched Shark Tank for a while, almost as a kind of a, a, a preparation as I transitioned out of academia and just realized that, yeah, I think I do have this, the entrepreneurial bug. And then I started to just learn from other entrepreneurs and Twitter was great at the time to follow other entrepreneurs and, uh, and VCs, I guess, uh, who could tell you about like the inside scoop. So yeah, I kind of started to sort of see myself as an entrepreneur, a biotech entrepreneur and Perlara was really created, I think, to be a different kind of biotech company because the, 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 the science was going to be something that was not quite popular at the time, which was using these animal models. And or people said another company did that a long time ago called Exelixis and it failed. So why are you doing that now? So we had the science part that kind of made it fun and exciting and different, although it was just returning to back to it was just back to the future and then we had this kind of social mission business model mission where we wanted to partner with families like sanas and and figure out ways to eventually strike up co-development deals and and create our own little baby pharma companies that would be focused on on rare populations but then seeing bigger market opportunities after so yeah i think uh, entrepreneurship something i i see I, I, something is something i want to pay forward for for others that's because so many people helped me as I was kind of forming that identity. So yeah, I kind of now you know, happily call myself a, a biotech entrepreneur. I mean, it's um, when I had to kind of wind down Perlara 1.0 and uh, you know figure out what to do next, it was very clear that, yeah, I was part of this community and I didn't want to leave and felt like I could be contributing more, especially now that I was able to get into the clinic with a program that um, was sort of you know years in the making and uh, when no one else really believed in it. So I felt like I have something to offer. And uh, and then, yeah, once I got connected um, to this, you know, basically to, a, to kind of the most, um, I guess, yeah, the most motivated, I'm sorry, I wouldn't say most motivated, I would say kind of, you know, the most organized in some ways of the parents, and, you know, you know, the Slack community I'm talking about. I think once I was, um, you know, able to join that community, then it was clear that there was a lot of need and that, um yeah, everyone kind of needed some kind of a bit of CSO coaching, and that uh, it was something I could try to squeeze out the time to do because it's just just felt like um, if I can help, I need to help. What's the best way for for parents or patients to reach out to you to actually get your attention and and gain that respect? That uh, yeah, e email. I mean, e that's how. Again, I met. That's how. I mean, it becomes from there, it becomes word of mouth too, but, um, or, but it's, it's never really a phone call. <laughs> so it goes back to email. So yeah, at some point, um, 
yeah, I, I'm pretty discoverable, and uh, and usually within a few, you know, I'm a few degrees from from folks once they're kind of past the diagnostic odyssey. Um, and yeah, I think uh, probably don't want to advertise too much, given that uh, don't have uh, infinite hours. But uh, but yeah, I definitely am discoverable and reachable, and Twitter works as well. Um, That's a, I was kind of asking, what is the way for someone to stand out? Oh, I mean, I think no, if someone's coming from the rare disease community, that there's nothing they need to do to stand out. It's everyone else is sort of at a deficit there because I tend to ignore any, any kind of cold calls or cold uh, tweets that are you know that are not kind of on scope. But yeah, I think um, Twitter, email, reach out if you think uh, I can be of help. So let's talk a little bit outside of work when you're not just relentlessly working in the labs. What do you do? What do you do for fun? And, and how do you expand your life? Well, I mean, obviously, I try to maximize time. You know, I'm not working with family. I've got two boys under six, and they're quite a handful, especially in, in Oakland now, when we do have good weather and it's not smoked out. Um, this is a lot of fun to be outside with, with them. Yeah, it's basically, yeah, it's, it's work and family. I think, though, especially under COVID, it helps kind of simplify things. And you know, I wish I could be doing yoga and some of the other other things, but I guess that uh, with patients, that that stuff will be back at some point. But in the meantime, yeah, it's just really kind of clarifying to you know have have work and have family and and then kind of your the outdoors and nature. You know, kind of having new pro- profound respect now again for her, her her awesome power, but also that that's kind of the best way to reset. And <laughs> it's the best resource out there is natural, especially with young kids who are, especially my five and a half year old, who's more and more curious by the day. That's sort of like, what else do you need in your life? Yeah. My wife and I went for a nice long hike yesterday and it was wonderful because you can just get out in the woods and you can just forget about all the stuff going on and just worry about not tripping on that rock in front of you. And you start to see some things in nature, especially this time of year in New England. It's beautiful. So so, Ethan, before we go, do you have any last thoughts, anything you'd like to leave with our listeners, especially parents and patients that may be listening? I would say that, you know, I guess maybe depending on your career background, if you come from science, maybe it makes it a little easier. But, you know, after the diagnostic odyssey it's, is over, you know, it's a, it's a pretty emotionally turbulent time because you're so focused on getting to that you know, answer. And then you realize it's like, you know, climbing Mount Everest and realizing there's another Everest on top of it. And, and that's the cure odyssey, but that's, that's the most important one. The diagnostic odyssey was really just to get you in a position to start your cure odyssey. That's pretty overwhelming. Well, to, and daunting, if I kind of have any kind of parting advice at a high level, it's that, you know, that reaction is completely be expected. I mean, if, if one of my kids got that diagnosis, like, you know, I would be in a pretty good position to get started right away, but I'm kind of that's 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 very uncommon. Most parents are going to be in a family's going to be in a position where it's just overwhelming, and uh, the urgency, feeling of urgency, never goes away. The desperation, you know, doesn't go away. That said, there is a path. You're going to have to bushwhack part of the path, and you're going to have to rely on some sherpas here and there, and you're going to see some. Yeah, you're going to see some bodies down on the side, you know, on the side of the trail from previous failed expeditions. But you have to kind of stay focused, and if you kind of build build a team, build a strong team, that will kind of see you through to the summit. Obviously, there's there are devils in the details, but I think 
if there's one thing I've found, it's you kind of meet people where they are and you can kind of almost work with anybody because everyone shares that, that singular focus and that singular drive. They have different skills and so forth. We can, you can equalize all that other stuff with, with time and just kind of realize that that's the case. And so it's going to be bumpy and it's going to be long, but you have to, you have to take the journey. Well, thank you for that. And you used one of my favorite metaphors. And climbing Everest is exactly what this is like. And, and from one Sherpa to another, you know, it's, it's great to be able to help people through this. Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends to give us a listen.